Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Rachel Scava is a COO and has nine years experience. Rachel studied at John Carroll University with a degree in BS in political science and sociology at the University of Akron School of Law for Juris Doctorate Law. She's an attorney and specializes in operations, human resources, team building, company development, event planning, leadership, business growth, legal writing, strategic hiring, research, legislation, legal research, and meditation. She's also a member of the COO Alliance and works with a good friend of mine, Vinny, at uh, Fully Accountable. Rachel, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me, Cameron. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Looking forward to learning from you. The, um, I didn't realize that you have a law background. I do. I actually uh, ended up working for Vinny as his intern about eight years ago. Wow. And, and why the switch from law into operations? So I actually knew I never wanted to be a lawyer that was billing hours in a firm. My goal was always to end up in a company focusing primarily on labor and employment. Uh, I actually ended up with Vinny because he was looking for an intern, went to the university and was like, hey, give me your best kid in the business school right now focusing on HR because their current HR girl was on maternity leave and she was taking a year. Uh, and that just happened to be me. So that's how we got connected. And then eight years later, here I am. So were you in an MBA program or an undergraduate in business? Or was it to tie in with, with uh, law? How did that fit? Neither. I was a sociology major in college. Didn't have any idea of what I wanted to do. So I was just trying to buy some time going to law school and ended up loving the labor and employment world. Very cool. Yeah, I did my undergraduate degree in law. It's the only, um, I've got a bachelor's degree with a law major and it's the only one that was available in Canada. So I did four years of law classes and I loved employment law. I thought it was really fun. Yeah, I think what I've enjoyed most about it has being able to apply the legal concepts into the real world practice. I think mm-hmm. the largest issue I've always had with HR is the taboo nature around it. Like, sure. All of my friends, if you say like, oh, I'm an HR attorney, they're like, oh, you're the boogeyman, right? Yeah. I'm like, well, not really. Like here, I'm the one planning the parties. Like the Christmas is like my go-to thing. So if I'm not head of Christmas party, like we've got a bigger problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting that I think in a lot of people, a lot of respects, people think that lawyers are that boogeyman and they don't understand it. But often lawyers are very COO. They're, they're just thinking about the who, what, when, where, why, and how on behalf of other people that maybe are quick starts. I think it's a really good logical kind of addition to the group. Totally. I think the best thing that my law degree gave me was all of the hypotheticals you have to go through at the Mm -hmm. time. Boy, did it suck. But now whenever I'm looking at an issue or when we're like up against a big problem, it's like, all right, we don't just have one, one way of answering this. What are all of our options? What are all of our different routes? And you don't have to operate in the black or the white. Like there's a lot of gray in every situation and really learning to evaluate that. Um, And then also just being very detail oriented. Because I think to be a good lawyer, you've got to really have detail and organization. And when you mix fact finding with those two, I think you can really find yourself as a strong COO with a law background. 
that's I missed on the detail orientation, but I loved the problem solving, the analytical side of things, the um, and the logic behind it all. It all just seemed to every every aspect of law that I studied over four years just seemed to make sense. And lawyers are so trained to be reactionary because how many times do you go to a lawyer and you're like, hey, here's a problem I might have. Let's find a problem or a solution for my problem before mm. me. Right? We're presented with here's my problem. Nine out of 10 times, the statute of limitations has already started running on what our response time is. So you've got to be quick to figure out a solution and run with it. Totally. So how do you work in, in, in law? Often lawyers and, and often accountants as well are paid to say no. You know, your mm-hmm. job is to be a little bit more risk adverse or to protect. I always say to protect the entrepreneur from themselves. How do you operate in an entrepreneurial firm where you need to be entrepreneurial. You need to be kind of making it up as you go and driving forward. Um, how do you match that with your, I guess, experience and um, maybe a preference, behavioral preference to, to be safer or to be more logical? Yeah, I think what I'm always trying to look for is, is there a way to have a yes? Not wow. going with the no, but how can we make a yes work? So can we compromise some of what your plan is to make the yes feasible? Um, and oftentimes, you know, you can start there and then you end up finding out like how many times have you started with an idea and it's been warped anyways along the way. So sometimes we're finding an iteration quicker because we're looking for a way to do it by already taking out the nonsense in the beginning. I love that. Can we have a yes? I had a, a franchisee of mine at one 800 got junk that came into one of our board meetings one time and he said, we need to approach every idea today with what if we could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of all the reasons we couldn't. So give me an example of when, when you had to kind of work towards a yes or you, you kind of found a yes when, when maybe your, the law side was kicking in. Sure. So we work with a lot of companies in the e-commerce space. So we're oftentimes, specifically um, in the last year, uh, one of our big complexities has been the sales tax nexus. So rather than just blindly saying yes or no, how can we figure out the right analysis and the right yes. So the yes might be yes, you do have a presence there, but the yes might be yes, we don't need to pay it here because we don't and under these rules. So learning to really use that detail and then also finding real facts to back what we're telling our client to do. Um, One, that helps them save money, but two, also gives us a lot of expertise in these different areas, which I think is a kind of a win-win for everybody. Totally. Okay. Well, let's go back for a second. I, and I should probably should have started with this, but we're only a few minutes in. Can you walk us through what Fully Accountable does, how you operate and how you're maybe different from other firms similar in your space? Yeah, totally. Uh, so Fully Accountable is an outsourced back office. So we do everything from your basic bookkeeping up through your high level CFO functions um, in a fractional capacity. So our real kind of stick is you can get your entire accounting and finance department for a fraction of a cost to bring it in house. And it's a super good solution for people in the e-commerce and digital space, which is the only demographic we serve because they're already accustomed to working remotely and digital with all of their different people. So uh, they're not, they're more so accustomed to this idea of not everybody has to sit under the same roof. I didn't realize that you were only in the e-com and digital space. That's good to know. Yeah. Okay, I've, I've referred a few clients to you. I've got to filter that out a little bit because I've probably sent some offline businesses that aren't just the right fit then. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So, and on the fractional side, do you also play a role where maybe, um, let's say that you've got a, a 25 person company and you've got a controller and maybe a payroll person or someone else, like a couple people in accounting, 
do you play a role where you're kind of the interim CFO and you're coaching that team and guiding that team? Yep, absolutely. So our our goal is to fit where your gap is. So mm. if your gap is having a CFO where you might have a controller that's not quite ready to get there, we've got plenty of CFOs on staff that will dedicate time to training them to help them learning how to get there for, you know, whatever you're just, you know, maybe you need 90 days, maybe you need six months, whatever it might be. Um, but maybe you've got the CFO that's overwhelmed. We can also be the bookkeeper for them so that they don't have to oh, do nice. the data entry, the, you know, pulling the reports and the reconciliations, get them really Whoa, like, interesting. elevate them. So they're doing the real work for the company. That's, you know, working with the business owner. We'll get the rest of that work done for them. Wow. I never thought of that, that they might have somebody who's too senior and spends all their time doing the junior work. They can outsource the junior work to you guys so they can be more strategic. That's brilliant. Totally. You know, the goal really, you should be looking at your accounting and finance as a profit center. And you can do that when your CFO is really focusing on how to grow that bottom line, whether it's acquisitions, cutting costs, better labor, cost of goods, negotiating contracts. That's where your CFO should be, whether it's us or somebody in-house. So let them stay there and have somebody else do that other work. That's super cool. I often think about your, your kind of service as a ladder and that the mm -hmm. finance group knows they want to get up on the roof and you're the ladder to get from where they are up to the roof they want to get to. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. So uh, go ahead. I was going to say, and then the way we differentiate ourselves is, so we're a hybrid model. We do have people that work in-house, but all of our staff accountants work throughout the U.S. Um, so what that does for us is if you're a California business, we've got somebody that's on PST with you. If you're mm -hmm. over in New York, we've got somebody that's on Eastern time with you. So you're, we're really flexible in that type of way as well. That makes sense too. Are you working with people on these government grant and loan programs that are out right now? We are. We're trying to stay very far ahead of that um, and really helping business. Right now, we're just looking to help. There's the, that's the best thing that we can do and we're just trying to stick there. Yeah, that's cool. Good for you. So you mentioned finance being a profit center. Can you give us an example of how, how your company has played that role? So for us, because we do really work in the e-com, that's going to be, you know, like I said, our main niche. Um, one of the things that we do is our daily stats program. And what that's doing is looking at your marketing every single day and evaluating your spend, running an estimated P&L for you, um, and looking at any type of campaign. So what it's hoping to do is catch early indicators of something that's not working so you can pivot a lot quicker. So we're trying to get the best data to you as quickly as possible so that you're making the best decisions that you can. Um, so what that does is say you've got a campaign that you thought was going to rock it, but turns out it's a pretty big flop and you could be three or four days in, not realize it, but by day six or seven, you're going to know that that's not working and you can change it. As opposed to in a traditional accounting firm, it's going to be 15 to 30 days after the close of the month that you know that that campaign didn't work for you. Cause that's usually when an accounting firm gets you your financials. Interesting. So do you help companies identify what needs to be on their dashboard, what numbers to look at as well? Or are you just merely looking at the dashboards they've set up? Nope. Uh, so we have what we call our top 10 KPIs for the different industries. Um, so we insist that you use all of those. Uh, and then teach you on why those are important numbers for you to look at and then incorporate the ones that you feel are going to be the most important for you. Okay. How do you identify what those are? So it's going to be primarily driven by 
what are the leading expenses in your business and what are the leading revenue drivers in your business? So you want to know what's driving your revenue and how it's backing out from the different expenses. So you can tell what you're doing if it's actually profitable for you. I've got four clients that are in the, um, in the Amazon space They're They all sell nutritional products and health and supplement products on Amazon, anywhere between kind of 15 and $50 million in top line revenue, all four of them. And one of the numbers I've been trying to work with them on is their, their turnover and how fast they're turning inventory. Yep. And, um, I came up with a number through talking to a number of different people that I'm calling the 240 number. Okay. And it's, it's the, your gross margin multiplied by your inventory turns has to equal 240. So let's say as an example, you make 50% gross margin, you turn your inventory five times, you're 250, you're in a good shape. Yep. But let's say that you've got 80% gross margin, you only turn your inventory three times, you're still at 240, you're in good shape. If you're someone like Walmart, who's got 10% gross margin, they have to turn their inventory 24 times, which makes sense because that's why they're shipping out every single day when an item comes off the shelf, it's going on a truck. Yep. Do you work with companies on that number at all on their, their inventory turns? And have you got a, a number or a ratio or anything that is more accurate than the one I've been winging? So I think that number is actually really accurate off the top of my head. I don't think we have a set 240 number. What we're doing is looking at each business and say, based on your cash flow in the terms of your manufacturer, what, and the rate at which you're selling, what do we, what are our reorder points? And so we'll trigger them based on, a lot of our clients are shipping stuff from overseas, so we need to know how long is it going to take if it's by boat or if it's by air. And then once it's in the U.S., how long is it then on ground to get to your fulfillment center? So we're going to factor each of those in when we're helping you figure out your terms for inventory. Yeah, and then I also look at how long is the expiry date because some people have expiring inventory, which really yeah. fucks with the number because now it's like if you've got a T-shirt, it's okay if it doesn't sell for 12 months, but if you're doing something that's like a – you know, some product that shelf life is only six months. You got to turn that stuff fast if you're buying right. it out of China, right? Yep, totally. Um, yeah, and especially like with the food stuff too, or like health supplements. It, and you know, other people are wanting to do lipo versus fipo because if you need to do a rush and you had to do it by air, but typically you do it by boat. What are all those different costs that we're factoring in as well? Yeah, and these are the numbers that I don't think a lot of entrepreneurs <clears throat> actually understand. I think entrepreneurs are really good at listening to the, well, I shouldn't say really good, but entrepreneurs would tend to be better at listening to their customer, creating a cool product, marketing and selling their product, but not necessarily managing all of the gears in, in kind of the financials. Well, I think it's fun. I mean, having worked with an entrepreneur now for so long, I think it's fun to watch that number grow, be it your sales number, your number of customers, your reach, your engagement. All of those are really fun numbers. It's not fun to watch your inventory go down or watch it ship its way over on a boat, right? Like, that's, where you, that's where you could be making or losing all your money too, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You're right though. It's no, it isn't that much fun to watch. All right. So let's talk about the entrepreneur. So you met Vinny he came in to poach you on campus. How long ago was that? That would have been 2012. Yep. So eight years. Eight years ago. Yeah, crazy, right? I was talking to someone the other day and I said, yeah, I started a fraternity with him in 1987, 33 fucking years ago. Holy shit, I got old. Like when did that happen? Well, I was even just thinking like at this point, right, you got to think of my career. I was 22 at the time. Um, what would I do if I had to go work it like a big company or like report to somebody. <laughs> you'd, kill like, your, you'd, you'd kill I, yourself. You, you couldn't, you can't I, anymore. 
Yeah, I was like, I don't even know if I fit in the regular, what they consider the regular American workforce. Like, yeah, I, like I couldn't. I could no longer work or even consult with government or a big corporate company. I just don't fit. I've been an entrepreneur or in an entrepreneurial space for so long that I just don't fit in that world. You don't either now. You're, you're yeah. firmly planted in the entrepreneurial world. So you met Vinny. What was it that attracted you to Fully Accountable back then? And what was the company like back then versus what you are now? So actually, uh, Fully Accountable wasn't even around back then. He owned a large web hosting company. And I mostly, to be honest, just wanted to get my foot in a door somewhere. And I was like, this guy's got a pretty good reputation, got a big company. I can get a lot of experience. The kid that was the intern before me went off and did really great things. So this is at least somewhere I know that I'm going to get the experience to take my career where I want to. Um, in Vinny's entrepreneurial journey, I then followed him to three more companies that then ended up being fully accountable. And one day I was like, all right, this is like, not that the other ones weren't real ones, but this is like a real one. This is like mm. a home run. We can build something really big off this. Let me, like, I want to, I want to have a bigger role. Like I can do more than the HR and your legal stuff. Like we can do this. Uh, so I started in 2014. I think the company started in July and I moved over in like October, November, as opposed to just working at his uh, like investment group Yeah. and ended up firing everybody except two people, restarted, hired everybody under a new model. They went from what looked like maybe doing about $200,000 that year to just over 850K. Now, did you fire them or did you technically fire them and rehire them all? Nope, fired them. So like you really, not, yep. So you fired them. Don't let your door hit the hit your ass on the way out, okay. and you rehired a whole new team. How long after you starting did you do that? So personally, I thought they were overstaffed and they were doing a bunch of unnecessary work. Uh, so I built some new systems, got some softwares to leverage the couple people that had. I think there were three, two people plus one of the owners as a CPA. So I leveraged their skills and some software and we didn't actually have to hire anybody for about 90 days. Okay. So, so you did it early enough, but you also gave it a little bit of time before you jumped in. Yep. Because uh, they had seven people. So we were able to do the work of seven people with three people. Okay. How do you stay on the same page with Vinny and how does he stay on the same page with you? I mean, he's, he's kind of classic <clears throat> visionary and um, quick start and business development and, and then you're kind of the operational side. Is that the roles that you play internally with each other? Yep, exactly. Um, so I think the best way we've stayed is communication. Um, I would say every day for the most part, we have some sort of quick check-in. Doesn't always have to be business, but more so like a, hey, how you doing? What's on your plate? You need any help with anything? Where, where's your day heading? And I think what has worked better for us is just having the good communication of where we're at because that helps us know where we're at with the business. Like if he's really struggling with something else, be it like a, if he's doing marketing, it's a hook. Like I can tell it's affecting somewhere else and we can walk through what might be happening elsewhere and get our hook fixed on the backside of it. Interesting. Okay. And, and are you guys, I know you're working out of an office. Is, are you in the same building together? Same space? Well, his office is right next to mine. I could okay. not do him. <laughs> okay, good. So you, yeah. you guys have that. You got the classic kind of style. So, yep. uh, okay. So how about your team? And walk us through what your role is now day to day and what your team looks like. Yep. So our team has about 32 people on it currently. Um, 
there is everything from CFO levels to uh, a large staff of uh, accountants, bookkeepers, and data analysts. My main role uh, would be making sure that the company is getting all of the metrics that we put in place for it. So all of our departments have their set metrics um, and identifying if we're missing one, why we're missing it there. And then the next piece of it would be innovating. So whatever might be next on our idea of making our company a little bit better, taking the charge on who's going to be responsible for that, what are the milestones we're looking to hit, and what's our ideal outcome. So I'm really trying to make sure that everybody is staying on the ship and we keep steering it going forward. Okay. And, and Vinny's role? Uh, his goal would, or main job is either leading me, so when I'm having issues or I need help, um, definitely leadership training for me. And then the other piece it would be uh, sales, really getting the name out, being the word piece for our company. Okay. And do you have other members on your leadership team or is it just the two of you? There, so we have a leadership team of four, which would be like our higher level exec team. And then we have a junior uh, board as well that has three people on it. Yeah. I call it the leadership team and the management team, right? Yeah, got the, the leadership team really decides strategy, the strategic direction, and maybe the, the plan and the how. And the management team tends to run functional areas. Yep. Uh, and you may call on them, but there's really that steering council or committee is the leadership team as I think of it. Well, and I found that I, I've made the mistake of including them in higher level things that they really shouldn't be included on. And it ends up burdening them more than it does when I just take them what I need them to be responsible. It's for, interesting right? you just said that, that it's sometimes people think they want to be involved and when they're involved, they're like, fuck, I, I didn't really need to know that. It's like, <laughs> it's almost like kids, you know, if you think of teenagers, I've got kids that are, are almost 17 and 19 now. They just don't need to be involved in the family finances to understand how I P&L this whole house in our lives. Like they don't, yeah. they don't need to understand you know, um, a credit line or borrowing or paying down debt or pulling money from one account and sending it or how, how, a, how a mortgage works or, like, or, or why I'm saving money in certain accounts. They don't need to understand that. What they need to understand is how, things, how much things cost and why, where we might waste money, but they don't need to, to be involved. Like it just confuses them. They don't, they don't, they go out of their life, right? I think it's also one of the reasons why in the, in the book meeting suck, I've tried to push people to not over invite people to meetings. It's like, if I'm going to invite you to a meeting, I want you to be participating. I want you to be answering questions. I want you to be providing ideas. If you can't do both of those things, it's probably not important for you to be at the meeting. You probably got other more important things to do. Are you guys good at that as well at, at keeping people out of some of the day-to-day -day meetings even? Totally. So I would say that we've definitely gone through a big iteration on meetings, um, primarily from the book kind of made them my own a little bit just to fit like our company specific. Um, but it, primarily around that idea of that I felt like we were wasting more time having these big meetings with everybody that really weren't necessary because A, they weren't moving the ship, B, they weren't contributing, and C, quite frankly, at the end of the day, they just don't care. Like my staff accountants don't care about what the marketing girl's promotions are going to be. They just want me to tell them so that they know that if their clients come to them and ask about it, they know what's going on. They don't feel like they're blindsided, right? So getting them the information that's going to be pertinent, but not making them part of the decision-making process of it. Got it. Yeah. I think that's the key, right? Yep. So how about conflict within the team? How often are you dealing with conflict amongst your team, amongst teammates? And then how about conflict with you and Vinny? Sure. 
So I would say actually Vinny and I have the least amount of conflict um, between our owners. So there's three owners of the company. Um, the Vinny and the other owner uh, tend to have a little bit more conflict. I think that he tends to get a little outnumbered because it's uh, CPA, lawyer, lawyer. But um, just because we see things a little bit differently and we come from different backgrounds, I think what I've learned to try to do though, because I tend to be the intermediary for them, is find what they're both actually trying to say. Because sometimes I've found that what you're saying and what you mean are oftentimes two different things. And for them specifically, if they find themselves getting very defensive, the argument starts going farther and farther out where it's like, now we're arguing about things that aren't relevant. Let's get back to where we need it to be. Um, so I think I've really tried to focus on identifying what are we really trying to accomplish and where's everybody in that spectrum of that goal, right? And then bringing yeah. it together. Um, for the team, I would say our team does a really good job of not having conflict. I have a massive no gossip and no, like I'm, I'm totally down with some sarcasm, like making fun. That's probably one of like the things our team loves. But once we take a step past that, like I don't do making fun of, gossiping, like that's no toleration. Um, I think put everybody on the phone or in the same room and we're going to talk it out until it's resolved. Like we don't need to do meeting over here, meeting over there, go in between, like let's be adults, let's sit down and let's talk this through. Like we can do this together and I'm on both of your side and we're going to figure it out. You talked, you talked a little bit earlier about culture as well. I, I don't remember if this was while we were talking on the podcast or before, but you said something to the effect of, you know, if we're even having a Christmas party, you want to be involved in that. Mm -hmm. so it sounds like you're pretty heavy on the culture side of things, which would be the antithesis of the typical lawyer. Walk us through what culture means to you and how you as a company are, you know, working on building a great culture for your, your employees and for your customers. Yeah. So culture for me, because we spend so much time working and with our coworkers, in theory, you know, you spend more time in a day at your job than you do with your families. I want you to be able to have that same comfort, family uh, support system in your job. Um, so that doesn't mean you're going to have your job just because I like you and whatnot, like there's standards, but because we're very objective with people, they know exactly how they're performing. So that's kind of, that's not really an issue for us. What we're looking to do is bring everybody in so you don't feel like because you're sitting in California, you're not part of the Ohio team. Um, so we're doing things like, you know, National Donut Day was one of the things that was a big for everybody. Dunkin' Donuts would deliver everybody a donut. So we got DoorDash to deliver a donut to all of our team members, regardless if they were at home or in the house. Uh, for the Christmas party, we fly everybody in. And for anybody that can't fly in for a period of time, we put up a big screen, we Zoom, and everybody's part of the big Christmas party, a uh, little chat. Some of the, We played some Christmas games, but it let everybody participate so it felt like you were there. Um, and then one of the things that we really pride ourselves on is a prop system. Uh, we built it for ourselves. And so it's, allow, it's a way for other team members to give other team members props. And what I think I found the most beneficial is that people like the props from their peers a lot better than they do from me. Like, yes, the one for me feels good because it's like I impress, you know, the boss. But at the end of the day, Ken propping Kevin feels a lot better because it's like my peer recognized me as a integral part of this team. And I want everybody to feel that. Well, yeah, and I think they expect to have props from their boss, but they don't necessarily mm -hmm. expect to hear it from their teammates. So yeah. it's, uh, that actually leads me into a comment that I've just written down was you mentioned something about being a family and 
a point that I've been talking about for a couple of years now is that some people had very dysfunctional families, mm-hmm. um, but you won't see a sports team operate without props. So, you know, a sports team, when they, as an example, American football, you've got the offensive team running off the field and the yep. defensive team running onto the field. They're all high-fiving each other. Yep. They're telling each other what the other one saw. And I think there's something about that team environment that if we are giving each other props or high fives or kudos or, or whatever. Um, yeah, that goes a long way. Why did you build it in house versus using an outsourced tool like a tiny pulse or 15 five? So I use a surveying tool for myself that surveys the team uh, weekly or biweekly, depending on whatever it is to get feedback on how the company's doing. Uh, the tool that we have is actually built into our proprietary uh, system that we have that does all of our reporting. So it's just, because we manage everything out of it, That's it made it a more uh, centralized place to have it. Makes sense. That's totally clean. So you talked earlier about Vinny, you kind of working with you on some of your skills. Um, why did you get involved in the COO Alliance? So a couple reasons. Um, one, to date, all of my personal development would have been exclusively uh, having trained under him and being my mentor. Um, and I think it's a good comment, you know, he said, you need to learn from more than just one person, like, even going back to the sports analogy, like, a team isn't coached by one person, there's a lot of different people on the team that coach. And, mm. you know, so that was one of the reasons. Number two, for me personally, I'm a pretty big introvert. So it was forcing me to get out of my comfort zone. Um, I do well at events for us because I'm selling and I'm very passionate about our company and I'm surrounded by other team members. But this has really just plopped me in the middle of a group of people and forced me to figure it out, uh, which has been good. (laughs) What do you think your big takeaways have been so far? Oh boy, big takeaway. So for me personally, free PR has been the massive home run. Um, We've had really good success with that. Um, And I'm I'm personally very proud of it because I don't have any type of marketing background. And I led that charge with our marketing girl. Um, So from a personal perspective, it was like, I read the book, understood it, reverse engineered it for our team, and I'm getting to see success on it. So that's been really awesome. Um, And then I think from just being in the events, the other thing I've really enjoyed is getting to hear other people's perspectives on stuff. Um, Vinny's run his own mastermind. So I feel like I've heard a lot of the entrepreneur perspective. And one of the big arguments I think, or things I've always had to like, fight with him on is that the COO, not that he doesn't think it's important, but it's always the business owner, this, the entrepreneur, that like a lot of what we do is actually for the COO and really helping show like, at least open my eyes that I'm not the only person that's like having to fight that fight sometime. Well, you know what I've really realized is that I think most mastermind groups or most conferences are teaching the CEO how to run the company. Mm-hmm. And I think they're missing the point. I think they should be teaching the CEO what needs to happen but we need to teach the COO how to run the company. Yeah. The CEO okay. needs to know how, you know what we're going to learn, but then this cuz the CEO is not going to sit and focus on if no. we wanted to talk about interviewing for 4 hours, they'd lose their mind whereas a, C, a COO would be like, can we do more after lunch, you know? Right. Totally. And it's nice to actually have some like tactics and sitting down and going through some worksheets cuz so many of those entrepreneur things turn into uh <laughs> Random, random blue yeah. sky discussions. Yeah. So um, the April CO Alliance event, which we're now doing online because of this whole COVID-19, the theme is sales, marketing, and PR. So we're going to dive into some more PR there for you too. Yeah. Um, debt. You mentioned earlier that, um, that, that a lot of companies and a lot of advisors are saying, you know, that debt is the way that you should fuel your growth. Do you want to comment on that? Because I think you had some good insights there. 
Yeah. So I think there's debt has a purpose, right? Debt allows us to acquire and do some things that we naturally wouldn't be able to do without, without it. Right. But I, at least our company's philosophy is you take on debt that you know that you can repay and you build a plan to repay that and you don't start leveraging your debt for other debt. Um, I think, you know, right now we're in this middle of this COVID crisis and the, the panic around all of these different stimulus pan, plans is really being fueled by the people that have a lot of debt and how can they get that money? And the focus to me should really be not to get that money to pay your debt, but get that money to pay your people. That's the important piece of it. Yeah. And if you're learning how to use debt, but then also build revenue and pay that debt off so that you can then have something else, um, specifically something that's going to be a profit for you and a revenue generator, you're going to be in a lot better position than leveraging debt over and over and over again, because you just end up in this cycle of making money to pay it back off, right? Like you're, are you ever keeping it for yourself? Is yeah, I've, I've often used the analogy of someone who takes, takes on a mortgage, which, you know, most people, you take a mortgage to buy a home. Great. Awesome idea. So long as you can, pay off the mortgage and that you can service the mortgage and the interest on the mortgage and you don't become house poor. Right. I think so often people buy homes that are way bigger and way flashier and more than they ever need. And then they can't service the, the debt and, and they're buried and they have no lives. So then they have to borrow against credit cards and credit lines to pay for the rest of their life. And then, then all of a sudden there's a bit of a crisis, they're screwed. And I think right. that's the as I mentioned earlier to you when we were offline, I just sat with a, a guy who sits on the Federal Reserve Bank and he said that debt is good until it's bad. Yeah, I love and that. I, I think that's the um, the one that's always rung true for me is that, you know, use strategically debt can be very good, but mm -hmm. if, if you're not careful, it can be bad. What advice would you have for us? I mean, you spent, you, you spent a lot of time in the um, internet marketing world and around internet marketing entrepreneurs. What advice for us would you have related to... Um, you know, what you've seen in their industry and how we can operate better as entrepreneurs. What, what are they doing well in that space that, that all businesses could do better at? So I think two parts to that. I think that the entrepreneur, go for it, make your, make your dream happen is a incredible trait that I definitely admire from the entrepreneur. Um, I think that ability to take that risk, jump in all in a hundred percent is something more people uh, should really not be afraid to do. I think that that's really how the best companies come about is somebody's willing to take a risk, right? Like mm. he was willing to take a risk on an intern that had only been in school for six months, but said that she could do it because I knew that I could, even though I definitely oversold myself. Right. So I <laughs> totally fine admitting that I probably even admit it the very next day, but that ability to take that risk, I think more companies need to do nothing drives me more nuts than a woman working with a big company that has all the bureaucracy. That's like Cameron has to approve then Meredith does then oh. Gordy does then Rachel does. And I'm like, good God, we could have, we could have already known if this works or not. If somebody just said yes, yeah, right. Make like the make the call. I think that risk taking is something that companies could do a lot better. I think the thing that entrepreneurs could do a lot better is give themselves more credit. I think because they hide behind the word entrepreneur, it's like, well, if it doesn't work out, I'm just an entrepreneur anyways. Like, it does work out and they're doing really incredible things from health supplements to marketing agencies to uh, healthcare companies. Like those people all started as an entrepreneur at one point, like yeah, had to start there. So I think they need to give themselves more credit. A, a lot of entrepreneurs 
and this has been my world has been, you know, coaching and speaking to entrepreneurs now for almost 20 years, a lot, a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs. And I, I would even venture to say like 85 to 90% of entrepreneurs are on the spectrum for bipolar disorder mm-hmm. are on the spectrum for attention deficit disorder. And we're probably C students or B students. So they spent sure. their entire life being told they were fucked up, weren't good enough, weren't that smart. They couldn't pay attention. They were all over the map. And it's really hurt their psyche as a human when you think that going to school from kindergarten until end of college or even grade 12, you're, you're in school now for 13 to, to, to 17 years of being told that you're not an A right. and, the, and that you have a disease called bipolar, a disease called attention deficit. And I think that's really harmed the psyche of them all that they need, they've given themselves an out. And I, th- I think you're right that entrepreneurs are doing something pretty incredible. And, and I think that's why I love the industry so much as well as I really respect them for giving it a shot. I also really, I think I also really respect the second in command, the COO for being able to pack our parachute every day as the entrepreneur, <laughs> you know? Totally. Well, do you, I forget what the number is, but I mean, small businesses are the livelihood of over half of our country. So I mean, that's a pretty incredible number. Well, I think it's 86% of all statistics are made up on the spot 42% of the time. So (laughs) (laughs) including that one. Last two questions I've got. You mentioned earlier that um, companies could be better at at hiring freelancers and working with freelancers and that that's done a lot in the digital space. Can you give us some color behind that? Yeah. So um, we, what I call is our super employee theory. So how that works is that every employee um, or group of employees in a department has some super employees. So perfect example is our marketing department. She has a project, she's a project manager who has skill sets and everything, but she has a virtual assistant that can do graphic design for her, that can do front end coding, that can do copy, that can do social media posts. So her job is to make sure that all of the lowest level, lowest generating revenue work gets to them so that she can work on her highest and best use and the most revenue generating items for her. And our entire company operates that way. So it could be a software or it could be a a virtual assistant of some sort, but we're leveraging a lower level, less expensive team member to be able to really expand on the abilities of our higher paid team member. I like it. Yeah. You're outsourcing everything except genius. Yep. Last question. If you were to go back to the 22-year-old Rachel graduating from university or college, what words of advice would you give yourself back then that, you know, now you know it to be true, but you didn't really know it at 21 or 22? I think it would just be that everything will work out. I was always so worried that I either wasn't going to make it, I wasn't going to be good enough, somebody wasn't going to believe in me that I kept trying to overprove myself time and time again. Um, and I think that, it, that I would, that I can do it and I'd be okay would be what I tell myself. It's awesome. Rachel Scabba, you're doing okay. The COO <laughs> for fully accountable. Thank you very much for sharing with us on the second in command podcast. Thanks for having me. That was awesome. You've been listening to second in command brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.